Friday afternoon, I coming from downtown Richmond, pulled up to a stoplight. It's happened time before. And there was a man sitting there in a bucket. And he had partial military fatigues on and had a sign that said he was a veteran, said that he was homeless and help if we could. God bless you. And uh, you've seen those signs before. My normal today is to reach in my pocket and see if I have some dollar bills or something and put them in there, but also reach in the center console of my truck and pull out a track and give him the track. So I did that. And uh, my feelings about those guys and those folks have been all over the spectrum over the years. You know, I've maybe like some of you at some point thought, you know, well, it's his own fault he's out there or uh, you know, I wonder if this is for real. I've heard people talk about scams, that there's a number of them doing it together and make a lot of money. So there's all kinds of things. But, you know, I, I've come to a point in my life now and realize that uh, I'm going to take it for face value and realize, but the grace of God go high there. And that uh, if it weren't for God in my life, why would I think that I could be someplace different? I had those same feelings when I ministered in the jails. I came in there with kind of a condescending attitude initially. And uh, I sat there and listened to these stories and heard the hearts of these men that I ministered to and taught Bible studies to in the jail and thought, uh, finally, God kind of broke me down. In fact, I'll tell you this honestly, probably one of the greatest things that happened in my life in preparation to be a pastor was to minister in the jail. It changed my attitude about people. It's very easy for you and I to kind of be judgmental. It's very easy for you and I to kind of look down our nose, so to speak, at different people and, you know, kind of assign blame to them and realize, you know, I'm so much better than that. Or, But I'm here to tell you, listen very carefully, we're all destroyed lives but by the grace of God. God is the only thing of value in any one of us. And many of you have a lot of value from my perspective. You're precious folks and you have a precious heart for God and precious things, but it all comes from God. What is the greatest thing that we can give individuals that seem to be downtrodden and feeling bad or maybe looking like they're hopeless or not having anything? God. It's nice to give them some change, too, that maybe they can have a meal and, uh, or get something better going on in their life or have enough money to get a new set of clothes to go out and apply for a job or something. I don't know. But what a privilege you and I have to look at people like God looks at them. It's so easy to look at people from the flesh perspective, because why? Because we're flesh, and we live that way. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you ended up in this life right now poor, poor beyond measure, absolutely nothing in your life except for the ragged clothes on your back. You're homeless. You're needy and realize that you're in a position of life that if other people didn't give you a donation that you weren't going to survive. You're desperate. You had no hope. You find yourself where you haven't had a bath or a shower in more than a month. You haven't eaten in several days. You're cold. You're miserable. You find yourself one particular night out on a dark, dusty road. You're moving to a different city thinking maybe that would offer hope, that city. And as you're trudging down that dark, desperate road, you're getting more and more tired with each step. But you're round a bend, and all of a sudden, off in the distance there, you see this bright 
flight. And as you get closer, you realize it's a huge house. You get closer yet, you realize it's got these huge windows, and you can actually see from afar into the windows what's going on. So you desire to walk up close to it. Look inside that house and see what's going on, and you realize somebody's having a party there. There's a lot of cars in the driveway. But as you get closer, you see all those people, and then you see what just really sets your heart afloat. This huge, huge table with all this food. More food than you've probably eaten in the last couple of years, but also more food than you can begin to imagine. I mean, you can't imagine a table having that much food on it. And as you're looking in that window, you're hoping that you don't get discovered because you just want to stand there for a few minutes and kind of live through, you know, maybe thinking about eating that food. That might make you feel better and take the pain away in your stomach. But as you're standing there looking in that window, the owner of the house sees you. From across the room, he's looking over there. And then he points to his butler over here, and then he points to you in the window. You can tell that the owner of the house is directing the butler to take care of you. And you're kind of concerned now that I've probably gotten myself in trouble. And maybe he's going to come out and call the police on me. So you turn around, and as best you can, you try to move quickly out of that yard and down the driveway. And the butler comes running after you. And he said, hey, sir, hold up in a minute. So you turn around, and the butler says, hey, the owner of the house, my master, wants you to come in. He wants you to come and eat with us tonight for dinner. I mean, you can't believe it. I thought I was going to be put in jail for trespassing or for peeping Tom or whatever it might be in there, but really, the master of this house wants me to come in and eat with him. The great need that that man had that night was fulfilled at that banquet table of the master of that house. I'm sure most of you know where I'm going right now. That we have this incredible opportunity to have our lives filled, our lives made complete. The Bible tells us that by sitting at the banquet table of our master in heaven, that he has set before us all the riches of heaven and earth, all the riches that come through Christ Jesus. We have an incredible opportunity to sit there and to bask in those riches. It's not doesn't mean it's always going to be pleasant in this life. doesn't mean that we're not going to have hardships. doesn't mean that we're not going to go through persecutions or trials and tribulations or even, even some of the worst things we can face in life. doesn't mean that. But what it means is when I go through those things that he's walking with me every step of the journey that I'm going to sit in the riches of Christ as I go through the hardest experiences of life. I can go through the experiences of life being, the Bible says, more than a conqueror. It means that even in the defeats of life, I have victory. Even in the defeats of life that I have this incredible life, God desires to take His people and do exceptional things, extraordinary things. He wants to do supernatural things with just ordinary people. He really does. He desires to do that. Well, what does it take? It means us surrendering to Him. It means you and I need to begin walking in greater obedience. I'm going to start out kind of getting into the bulk of this sermon here. We'll read the scripture in just a second. With some basic assumptions. Basic assumptions I believe that we can draw for anybody that believes themselves to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Assumption number one, 
Everyone, everybody wants to know and experience God. I accepted Jesus Christ, and I want to experience Him. I've heard that there's life in Jesus Christ. I hear there's abundant life. I want to experience these things. I believe with all my heart that every Christian has that desire. Assumption number two, I believe that we all want to go to heaven. We've heard that because of salvation in Jesus Christ, i got a home in heaven. That I'm going to live up there someday and not down there. That God has rescued me through His Son, Jesus Christ, from being perished into hell for eternity. So we want to know that we have heaven. The third assumption. I believe we all want to know that we can overcome temptations and moral struggles that life seems to bring on. That I can have victory over these hard things I've dealt with for years. God, help me no longer to struggle with this or help me no longer struggle with this. I know I can have this peace that passes understanding. Father, I know that you can comfort like nobody else. But I believe, assumption number three here, that we believe with all of our heart that God desires to give us freedom from these things that destroy our lives. Let me give you one more assumption. One more fact that's probably true in most of our lives. We approach spiritual matters like we approach our health. I think many of us in our health regime are looking for that secret pill. You know, they advertise them. If you watch TV for an hour, you're going to probably see three or four commercials about getting a secret pill that helps you lose weight, helps you get in shape. Man, if I could take that weight. We all want a pill for our health that I can sit and watch TV. I can eat all I want to eat and take this pill, and I'm going to be skinny and thin. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a pill out there like that? Yes, here too. Preach it, honey. You know, we buy one diet plan after another, and, and diets are good. I think we need to eat healthy. And as Americans, most of the time we don't. You know, it's fast food extravaganza here in America. I'm not knocking fast food either. But we want that exercise, we want that fitness, and that, um, that nutritious plan, that diet's going to do it. You know, many of us see these advertisements on TV, and you see these people that are just as fit as can be, and they're doing the exercise on the bike or the, you know, the mountain climber or whatever it is, and, man, they're looking good. And so, man, I've got to get one of those because I want to look that good as that guy or that girl. And I want to look that great. And many of us buy those things. We buy that exercise team. And, you know, it comes in and we assemble it or we get our wife to assemble it. She's the great assembler at our house. Dad doesn't read the instructions. She does. So. But we exercise once or twice. And you know what? After that, pretty much sits there. And we realize after about a year or so, I just spent $1,500 to buy the nicest clothes rack you've ever seen. And it sits there and has clothes hanging on it. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I see a number of heads going up and down. You know, it's sad, but many of us in our spiritual life are looking for that magic pill as well. We're looking for that magic gift. They can guarantee to us with minimal input that spiritual high, that spiritual life, that spiritual maturity that we all want. How do we expect a great spiritual maturity when we do just enough to get by? That's a striking question. should step on some toes besides mine. How do we really expect to have that spiritual maturity with investing no time? It's not going to happen. Any more that's going to happen by thinking you're going to take a pill 
And the next day, we'll wake up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not going to happen. You know, we, we go through life, and many of us are thinking, is this as good as it gets? Or we think, my life seems to be missing something. There's something missing from this life. There must be more out there. You know, some of us go through life, and we ask the question, why do I continue to struggle with the same struggles out there? I just can't seem to beat this thing. I can't seem to get over on it. Or maybe some of us are just in the mode right now, I, I feel like I've seen God move in a great way, but I just don't feel as close to Him as I want to feel. I want to feel so close. I, I love God so much, I just want to wrap my arms around Him and feel Him wrapping His arms around me and have a close, intimate relationship with God. I want that, but I don't have it. I'm not there right now. Hear this very clearly this morning. There's no shortcuts to glory. There's not. There's a very simple process we can go through to accept Jesus Christ and have him live in our heart. Really. It's a gift. It's grace. God gave it to us while we were yet sinners. God says, I'm giving you my son. I love you so much, I'm giving you my son. But once we have his son, God is expecting some things from you and I. But you know what's so amazing about God? He's built in everything we knew to give everything we need to give back to him. I'm here to tell you, you begin loving God more and more every day, you know what happens? I can't help but give myself back to him. Think about your marriage, those of you that are married. As we've gotten to know our spouse, we've come to love more. Man, I want to serve her or serve him in a greater way. I want to draw closer to her. I want to draw closer to him. I want to see him or her in a greater light. I want to become a student of my spouse so I can serve them and bless them and love them in a greater way. I can't feel more loved. I had the experience the last couple of days here of having my grandson in my house. And I love that. I love that little dude. People have told me for years, man, wait till you have grandchildren. They're awesome. I'm here to tell you guys, they are awesome. It's unbelievable. I had no idea how awesome it is to have a grandchild. I think part of the reason is I'm a little smarter as an older man than I was when I had my own kids. I love my own kids when they're born too. But I know a whole lot more about life. I have a lot greater relationship with God today than I had when I was a younger guy when I had my own kids. And so I see God in my child there. And I see, God with, I see my child with God's eyes. But let me tell you what happened yesterday and the day before. As I was watching my wife take care of my grandchild, feeding him and having a fun, and he's eating himself and putting stuff off the tray, we, we got two high chairs for him now. And uh, so we loved having those, and my wife was so excited about using our brand-new high chairs for little Billy. I got emotional looking at my grandson. I got even more emotional watching my wife, how she loved that little fellow so much, how she desperately had an anointing from God to be a grandma. She really did. She was so filled with God's Spirit, just taking care of that little boy and loving on him and taking care of him and the fact that she basically... Held him about 90% of the day, except for when he's sleeping. Just, yeah, she couldn't hold him enough or love him enough. And for me to see my wife, and what I'm saying here, that's the kind of relationship that God wants you and I to have. Every day is sweeter than the day before. That great hymn talks about that. Is God sweeter in your life each and every day? You feel you're more in love with God today than you were yesterday. Well, Paul is very concerned about the Colossae church. He's very concerned about Beaver Dam Baptist Church and every church that calls Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. And he wants us to understand truth. He's going to share truth with us, but he's also given us some warnings. He's going to warn us today about legalism, about mysticism, and about asceticism. Let me tell you very clearly, clearly the de definition so as we go through this, you kind of understand it. Legalism means it's too strict of an adherence to the law. Man, the law's there, and I'm going to 
stick to it, man. If you break the law, that means you're not a Christian. Whatever it might be in the faith. Mysticism means that we want to add stuff to what Jesus Christ has done for us. We believe that Jesus Christ, what he did upon that cross wasn't enough. We need to add more to it. And the idea of mysticism, we need to add a spiritual realm to our relationship with Jesus Christ that is not in the Bible. Paul tells us very clearly in this scripture we're going to read here in just a minute that if it's not in the Bible, it's not true. And then asceticism. Asceticism is being obsessed with doing excessive things in your life to prove that you love God more. We'll talk about that in a second. But you may have heard about people that have gone on hunger strikes for, strikes for months because they want to draw closer to God. Fasting is good. But most ascetics that practice asceticism want to brag about it. They want to make it public so you know about it. Other people that haven't taken showers for months, I don't have no idea how that draws you. It doesn't draw you closer to God. It has no strength in restraining from sin, but it also will not lead to salvation. So all these things, listen very carefully, are cults. All these things are not of the Lord above. All these things will dampen and decrease your relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to warn about those. You know, I mentioned a minute ago that um, there's no shortcuts to glory. That growing spiritual maturity is easier. Growing in spiritual maturity is easier said than done. Spiritual growth. Listen very carefully. Takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes determination. And it takes encouragement. Spiritual growth takes effort, discipline, determination, and encouragement. I love the idea about encouragement. We hear from God three ways. We hear from God through His Holy Word, the Bible. We hear from God through the Holy Spirit. And we hear from God through holy people. We understand the Bible. We need, listen very carefully, we need to saturate ourselves with God's Holy Word. We need to have God's Holy Word washing over us all day long. We need to get into His Word every single day. We need to memorize Scripture, and that's how we have it washing over us. And you listen to Christmas, Christian music on the radio. A lot of those words are straight from Scripture. So you're singing these songs or listening to Christian songs on the radio. You know what you're doing? I'm allowing God's Holy Word to saturate over who I am because I'm hearing those things. And many of the songs you probably know. And you sing along. <laughs> I'm praising God in my car. I'm praising God at home while I'm vacuuming my car, mowing the lawn with headphones on, whatever it might be. But we need to saturate ourselves with God's Holy Word. The Holy Spirit, Psalms 46, be still and know that I am God. How do we do that? When I am still, the Holy Spirit speaks to me. The Holy Spirit intercedes for me. The Holy Spirit convicts me. The Holy Spirit encourages me. And so we need to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us. We quench the Holy Spirit. The biggest way that we quench the Holy Spirit... We're not still long enough looking for God. We don't desire to listen to God. We don't stand still or sit still or kneel still long enough for God to speak back to us. Too many times our prayer life consists of asking God for a few things or thanking Him for my peanut butter sandwich, my Twinkie and my carrot sticks at lunch. Amen. But when we pray, do we take time just to listen to God and meditate and sit in silence and just say, God, speak to my heart? When we read God's Word, do I say, God, speak to my heart in this Word today? Chapter 2 of Colossians, if you have your book here today, the book, God's book with you today, or if you have your phone today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16, to the end of the chapter there. 
you find your way to Colossians 2, verse 16, stand with me if you will this morning out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's holy word. Colossians 2, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regards to a festival or a new moon. You know what Paul's talking about here? He's talking about eating and timing. He's telling you, don't worry about these things, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainfully puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all, con- which, which all concern things which perish for the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, speak to our hearts this day. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul gives us three warnings to help us avoid losing our freedom. Paul writes about holding on to your freedom. He tells us why we can hold on to our freedom. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But he tells us in verse 16 and 17, let no one judge you. We're talking about legalism here. There, the essence here is that uh, I need to do these things, add works onto my salvation. If Jesus Christ was not enough for our salvation, he didn't need to die upon that cross. Jesus Christ died upon that cross, and on that cross he said, it is finished. What he meant is your, your salvation has just been pot and paid for. It's there. There's nothing else that needs to be added to your salvation. There's a lot of churches out there that say you need to do this, you need to do this, and don't drink tea or coffee, do this, or do all these things. It's legalism. That has nothing to do with your salvation. We want to walk according to God's standards, but we don't need to be bogged down and have our salvation diminished or diluted because people are telling us we need to do these things. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You know, there's a number of states out there, just for a little bit of levity and maybe get you guys a little surprised here, a lot of states out there that still have statutes on their books that are crazy. There are laws still in these states. In Florida, ladies, be careful here going to Florida, a woman can be fined for falling asleep in the hairdryer at a beauty salon. You can be fined for falling asleep in that hairdryer in Florida. It's on the books. Indiana. Citizens are not allowed to go to a movie theater or any public place in less than four hours after they've eaten garlic. Yeah, I think that's not a bad idea, probably. Wisconsin. A man with a mustache is not allowed to kiss a woman in public. This thing's coming off tomorrow. Michigan. It's against the law to make a face at a dog. Figure that one out. I love this because I love what they're talking about here. In Wisconsin, it's against the law to serve apple pie without a slice of cheese on top. These are all actual laws on the statutes in these states. In West Virginia, 
it's against the law for pastors to tell jokes from the pulpit. And uh, I was thinking maybe that would be good for Virginia too because you've seen many of my jokes flop. And I've told you the second service is not going to hear that one. And um, you guys don't get to hear those jokes because they got not a single laugh in the first service. You know, we laugh at these absurd, little ridiculous <laughs> list of rules and regulations and laws. You know, if we began looking at some of the rules and laws and regulations in churches, we'd laugh for a minute and then we'd realize how sad that is. How sad that there's denominations that do this. I'm not going to go down a lot of them, but I'll share one of them with you. There's one, in fact, the largest Christian faith, I use the word Christian in quotation marks, the largest Christian faith in the world has a rule that you need to go to confession. And the reason for that rule is that you need an emissary between you and God to take your confession to him and speak to God on your behalf. So you go to confessional. You sit in a little box and there's a little screen there and you speak to the box to the priest on the other side and tell him your sins so he can intercede for you up to heaven. When Jesus Christ died upon that cross, the veil was split in half from the top down. It's impossible for men to do that. God did that. What did God do that? He opened up the Holy Holies. He opened up the throne of grace, his room, where he's at, that you and I can enter in. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about having to confess your sins to another man, and that man needs to carry your confessions to the Lord. There's all kinds of rituals. I want you to understand this this morning, too, about theology. Theology is the foundation of God's Word here. Theology, the, the foundation for all theology is this, God is. That's the number one theological thought in the Bible. That's also the foundation for all theology. So we've got theology here as the foundation for all these things. Then on top of that, we have doctrine. Well, what is doctrine? Doctrine is, the, as best we can, based on the Holy Word of God, how we live the theology. It's doctrine for our church. What do we believe in? We believe in baptism by immersion. Why? Because the Bible says it here. That's a doctrine of our church. Then we have the third thing, which we call dogma. A dogma is just some man's idea that thinks this would be good. Basically based on the Bible, but not really taken straight from the Bible, but a good idea. A good idea would be that we have priests that receive our confessions. That's a dogma. That's man's idea trying to interpret God's word. What happens in, 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 in the life of the church is there end up being too many dogmas. Some of them based on false religion. Some of them based on misinterpreting the scripture. Some of them based on ignoring the scripture altogether. So dogmas are not good. The reason that I'm a Baptist, not because it's some great denomination or great group of folks, and it is, but the reason I call myself a Baptist is because of all the denominations out there that I know about, the Baptists, the, the Southern Baptists, the ones that are still standing on the inner word of God, stand as firmly as humanly possible, I believe, in their doctrine, their understanding, and in their theology based on God's holy word. We don't allow, we try not to allow any dogmas to come in there, any man's interpretation of these things. They're trying to rewrite the Bible, as you know, and it's diluting too many Christians' lives. You know, there's a church in Houston, Texas. It's the largest church in America today. They run more than 25,000 people every Sunday, kind of close to what we run. 25,000 people. But that pastor down there will not preach about the cross, will not preach about death, will not preach about sin. It's just too hard to preach. 
It's too hard to talk about. It scares people. Well, I'd like to think we can scare people out of hell. That they don't want to, because they understand the truth, the whole truth, what the cross was. But how can you have the largest church in America and not preach about those three significant things? I can tell you why. Because people today like to have their ears tickled. They like to have their ears filled with things that make them feel good. I want to do that too. At the same time, I don't want to dilute the truth. I don't want to avoid the truth. Verse 18 here says, let no one teach you. Let no one teach you, treat you. False teachers here are telling believers that they need to have a, another spiritual experience or another spiritual exploitation in their life on top of what they already have. It's mysticism. Too many people in the church today and, and too many churches are living for that extra experience. They want that extra experience. <laughs> The experience, unfortunately, becomes the authority for their faith as opposed to Jesus Christ. When we look at these experiences, we realize, I need to have these things. And there's denominations today in America that say, if you don't have these extra experiences, then you're not truly a real Christian. You don't have enough faith if you're not having these experiences. One of those things is being slain in the Spirit. Have you ever seen that on TV? You know, slain in the Spirit, and they fall over, and they quiver around the stage, and all these things there. Slain in the Spirit. They say you're not really a full follower of Jesus Christ. You haven't received the fullness of God's grace by being slain in the Spirit a second time. You need to be slain in the Spirit and have this outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on you. The question here was, where is that in the Bible? The other question is, really? I've been touched by God Almighty. He saved me. He came down and He lives inside me here and He gave me the Holy Spirit when I got saved. Why in heaven's name would I need a second pouring of the Holy Spirit after God already gave it to me? God's very clear about the Holy Spirit coming. It comes when we receive Jesus Christ. You get all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. But there's denominations because of their dogma. They feel like they need to have a second slaying in the Spirit. The third thing is, do not need to subject ourselves to the world. Look at verse 20 for a second. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subdue yourselves to regulations? He's saying here, you know, you got saved merely by grace. God gave you this gift. Why do you think now, once you're a Christian, you have all of God that you're ever going to get, that you need to do more things to prove yourself worthy of God? He's already made you worthy through Jesus Christ. He's already given you this life through Jesus Christ. Why do I feel like I've got to go do all these extra things and do all these works here to, be, to feel appropriate or to be feel worthy, feel worthy of all the things that God's given us? If you have your Bibles with you still, look over at verse 9 in chapter 2. Paul, before he gave the Colossian church the warnings, he gave them the foundations of freedom. He tells them what we have in Christ, and I'll go through this very quickly. Verse 9 and 10, Paul tells the Colossian church, he tells Bibadam that you're complete. We are complete. Look at verse 9. He says, you're complete in him who, the, who is the head of all principality and power. Paul says, Jesus Christ says, says that you're complete in him. Number two, he says we are alive. Look at verse 13. He said, well, end of 13, it says, He has made us alive together with Him. And the third thing, he says, Our sins are forgiven. Look at verse 13 again. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Jesus Christ makes us complete. He makes us alive. He has forgiven us. And finally, in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them 
triumphing over them. Jesus Christ has given us victory. We have a foundation of freedom. The foundation of freedom is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He made us complete. Think about that. We got everything we need. We are alive. God has given us life here. He's forgiven our sins and he's given us victory. Those four things, it says it right there in the verses 9 through 15. Our foundation to freedom. I'm going to conclude with this one story here. This is Russell Conwell's classic story. Russell Conwell was the founder of Temple University. He served for 38 years as that president. He delivered one speech through all those years, and he delivered it more than 6,000 times. The speech was known as Acres of Diamonds. Part of that story was about a fellow by the name of Ali Hafid. He was a prosperous Persian farmer. Farming away one day, a priest came to visit him from out of the country. He came up to Ali and said, hey, how are you doing? And got to know him pretty good, and then he wanted to share a story. So sitting down over dinner, he shared this story about a place that this priest had heard about where there's acres of diamonds buried. They were there for the taking if you could actually find that acreage. Talked about how they'd gotten there and talked about the amount of diamonds, and it was a king's ransom there. Phenomenal amount of diamonds. And so the priest left and prayed for the fellow and said he wished he well in his farming. You know, Ollie couldn't get this story out of his mind. And so Ollie told his wife, he said, you know what? I think God's telling me to go look for those acres of diamonds. We've farmed for all these years and we've done okay, but, you know, I, I want to see if we can't find this incredible treasure. So they packed up and sold everything and we were on the road. They were on the road for almost two decades looking around the world, traveling overseas and over all these different lands, looking for the acres of diamonds. Almost 20 years later, they found themselves penniless, homeless, destitute. They both ended up dying in a foreign land, never having found those diamonds. Several years later, somebody discovered those diamonds in all these former farm. Bit right there under his nose. What I want you to hear this morning, your diamonds, your treasure is not in a foreign land. It's not across all the seas. It's right in your own backyard. It's right here. My heart for our body believers here, my heart for my precious friends in this church is that we would begin appropriating that treasure into our heart. We begin to grow. We begin to let God's word saturate over us. We'd reconnect with our faith, maybe. Maybe you're already there. Every one of us, beginning with the pastor, can grow in a greater way. I desire to do that. I believe God wants to do a miracle this summer with you and with me. We're going to introduce that miracle next weekend. I'll talk about it here in a few minutes. But right now, I want you to think about this. I don't want to leave here today. I don't want you to leave here today without saying to yourself and God, I want to grow. I want to see God what else you have for me out there. I want to commit myself. I want to surrender myself today to see your hand at work in my life in a powerful way.